Book Three, Part Four of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book Three, Part Four. August twenty-fifth to August thirtieth, eighteen sixty-two. August twenty-fifth, about twelve at night. Sleep is impossible after all that I have heard. So after vainly endeavoring to follow the example of the rest and sleep like a stoic, I have lighted my candle and take to this to induce drowsiness. Just after supper, when Anna and I were sitting with Mrs. Carter in her room, I talking as usual of home and saying I would be perfectly happy if Mother would decide to remain in Baton Rouge and brave the occasional shellings, I heard a well-known voice take up some sentence of mine from a dark part of the room, and with a cry of surprise, I was hugging Miriam until she was breathless. Such a forlorn creature, so dirty, tired, and fatigued as to be hardly recognizable. We thrust her into a chair and made her speak. She had just come with Charlie, who went after them yesterday, and had left mother and the servants at a kind friend's on the road. I never heard such a story as she told. I was heartsick, but I laughed until Mrs. Badger grew furious with me and the Yankees and abused me for not abusing them. She says when she entered the house, she burst into tears at the desolation. It was one scene of ruin: libraries emptied, china smashed, sideboards split open with axes, three cedar chests cut open, plundered, and set up on end. All parlor ornaments carried off, even the alabaster Apollo and Diana that Hal valued so much. Her piano, dragged to the center of the parlor, had been abandoned as too heavy to carry off. Her desk lay open with all letters and notes well thumbed and scattered around, while Will's last letter to her was open on the floor with the Yankee stamp of dirty fingers. Mother's portrait, half cut from its frame, stood on the floor. Margaret, who was present at the sacking, told how she had saved father's. It seems that those who wrought destruction in our house were all officers. One jumped on the sofa to cut the picture down. Miriam saw the prints of his muddy feet. When Margaret cried, "For God's sake, gentlemen, let it be! I'll help you to anything here. He's dead, and the young ladies would rather see the house burn than lose it." I'll blow your damned brains out," was the gentleman's answer as he put a pistol to her head, which a brother officer dashed away, and the picture was abandoned for finer sport. All the others were cut up in shreds. Upstairs was the finest fun. Mother's beautiful mahogany armoire, whose single door was an extremely fine mirror, was entered by crashing through the glass. When it was emptied of every article and the shelves half split and half thrust back crooked, letters labeled by the boys "private" were strewn over the floor. They opened every armoire and drawer, collected every rag to be found, and littered the whole house with them, until the wonder was where so many rags had been found. Father's armoire was relieved of everything. 
Gibbs's handsome Damascus sword with the silver scabbard included. All his clothes, George's, Hal's, Jimmy's, were appropriated. They entered my room, broke that fine mirror for sport, pulled down the rods from the bed, and with them pulverized my toilet set, taking also all Lydia's china ornaments I had packed in the washstand. The debris filled my basin and ornamented my bed. My desk was broken open. Over it was spread all my letters and private papers, a diary I kept when I was twelve years old, and sundry tokens of dried roses, etc., which must have been very funny, they all being labeled with the donor's name and the occasion. Fool! How I writhe when I think of all they saw! The invitations to buggy rides, concerts, compliments of, etc., Lily's sewing-machine had disappeared, but as Mother's was too heavy to move, they merely smashed the needles. In the pillaging of the armoires they seized a pink-flounced muslin of Miriam's, which one officer placed on the end of a bayonet and paraded round with, followed by the others, who slashed it with their swords, crying, "'I have struck the damned Sasesh! That's the time I cut her!' and continued their sport until the rags could no longer be pierced. One seized my bonnet, with which he decked himself, and ran in the streets. Indeed all who found such rushed frantically around town by way of frolicking with the things on their heads. They say no frenzy could surpass it. Another snatched one of my calico dresses and a pair of vases that mother had when she was married and was about to decamp when a Mrs. Jones jerked them away and carried them to her boarding-house and returned them to mother the other day. Blessed be heaven, I have a calico dress. Our clothes were used for the vilest purposes and spread in every corner, at least those few that were not stolen. Aunt Barker's Charles tried his best to defend the property. "'Ain't you shamed to destroy all dis here that belongs to a poor widow lady who's got two daughters to support?' he asked of an officer who was foremost in the destruction. "'Poor! Damn them! I don't know when I have seen a house furnished like this. Look at that furniture!' They poor, was the retort, and thereupon the work went bravely on of making us poor indeed. It would have fared badly with us had we been there. The servants say they broke into the house crying, Where are those damned secesh women? We know they are hid in here, and we'll make them dance for hiding from federal officers. And they could not be convinced we were not there until they had searched the very garret. Wonder what they would have done. Charles caught a Captain Clark in the streets when the work was almost over, and begged him to put an end to it. The gentleman went readily, but though the devastation was quite evident, no one was to be seen, and he was about to leave, when, insisting that there was someone there, Charles drew him into my room, dived under the bed, and drew from thence a Yankee captain by one leg, followed by a lieutenant, each with a bundle of the boys' clothes, which they instantly dropped, protesting they were only looking around the house." The gentleman captain carried them off to their superior. Ours was the most shockingly treated house in the whole town. We have the misfortune to be equally feared by both sides because we will blackguard neither. 
So the Yankees selected the only house in town that sheltered three forlorn women to wreak their vengeance on. From far and near, strangers and friends flocked in to see the ravages committed. Crowds rushed in before, crowds came in after Miriam and Mother arrived, all apologizing for the intrusion, but saying they had heard it was a sight never before seen. So they let them examine to their heart's content, and Miriam says the sympathy of all was extraordinary. A strange gentleman picked up a piece of Mother's mirror, which was as thick as his finger, saying, "'Madam, I should like to keep this as a memento.' I am about to travel through Mississippi, and having seen what a splendid piece of furniture this was, and the state your house is left in, should like to show this as a specimen of Yankee vandalism. William Waller flew to our home to try to save it, but it was too late. They say he burst into tears as he looked around. While on his kind errand, another band of Yankees burst into his house and left not one article of clothing to him, except the suit he had on. The whole talk is about our dreadful treatment at the Yankees' hands. Dr. Day and Dr. Enders, in spite of the assertions of the former, lost nothing. Well, I am beggared. Strange to say, I don't feel it. Perhaps it is the satisfaction of knowing my fate that makes me so cheerful that Mrs. Carter envied my stoicism, while Mrs. Badger felt like beating me because I did not agree that there was no such thing as a gentleman in the Yankee army. I know Major Drum, for one, and that Captain Clark must be two, and Mr. Biddle is three, and General Williams. God bless him wherever he is, for he certainly acted like a Christian." The Yankees boasted loudly that if it had not been for him, the work would have been done long ago. And now I am determined to see my home before Yankee shells complete the work that Yankee axes spared. So by sunrise I shall post over to Mr. Elder's and insist on Charlie taking me to town with him. I hardly think it is many hours off. I feel so settled, so calm, just as though I never meant to sleep again. If only I had a desk, a luxury I have not enjoyed since I left home, I could write for hours still without being sleepy, but this curved attitude is hard on my stiff back, so good night while I lie down to gain strength for a sight they say will make me faint with distress. Nous verrons. If I say I won't, I know I'll not cry. The Brunos lost nothing at all from their house, thank heaven for the mercy, only they lost all their money in their flight. On the door, on their return, they found written, Ladies, I have done my best for you, signed by a Yankee soldier, who they suppose to be the one who has made it a habit of continually passing their house. Forgot to say, Miriam recovered my guitar from the asylum, our large trunk and father's papers, untouched, from Dr. Enders's, and with her piano, the two portraits, a few mattresses, all that is left of housekeeping affairs, and father's law books, carried them out of town. For which I say, in all humility, blessed be God, who has spared us so much." Thursday, August 28th. I am satisfied. I have seen my home again. 
Tuesday I was up at sunrise, and my few preparations were soon completed, and before anyone was awake I walked over to Mr. Elder's, through mud and dew, to meet Charlie. Fortunate was it for me that I started so early, for I found him hastily eating his breakfast and ready to leave. He was very much opposed to my going, and for some time I was afraid he would force me to remain, but at last he consented, perhaps because I did not insist, and with wet feet and without a particle of breakfast, I at length found myself in the buggy on the road home. The ride afforded me a series of surprises. Half the time I found myself halfway out of the little low-necked buggy when I thought I was safely in and the other half I was surprised to find myself really in when I thought I was wholly out, and so on for mile after mile over muddy roads, until we came to a most terrific crossroad where we were obliged to pass, and which is best undescribed. Four miles from town we stopped at Mrs. Brown's to see Mother, and after a few moments' talk went on our road. I saw the first Yankee camp that Will Pinckney and Colonel Byrd had set fire to the day of the battle. Such a shocking sight of charred wood, burnt clothes, tents, and all imaginable articles strewn around I had never before seen. I should have been very much excited entering the town by the route our soldiers took, but I was not. It all seemed tame and familiar. I could hardly fancy I stood on the very spot where the severest struggle had taken place. The next turn of the road brought us to two graves, one on each side of the road, the resting place of two who fell that day. They were merely left in the ditch where they fell, and earth from the side was pulled over them. When Miriam passed, parts of their coats were sticking out of the grave, but some kind hand had scattered fresh earth over them when I saw them. Beyond, the sight became more common. I was told that their hands and feet were visible from many, and one poor fellow lay unburied just as he had fallen, with his horse across him, and both skeletons. That side I was spared, as the road near which he was lying was blocked up by trees, so we were forced to go through the woods to enter, instead of passing by, the Catholic graveyard. In the woods we passed another camp our men destroyed, while the torn branches above testified to the number of shells our men had braved to do the work. Next to Mr. Barbie's were the remains of a third camp that was burned, and a few more steps made me suddenly hold my breath, for just before us lay a dead horse with all the flesh still hanging, which was hardly endurable. Close by lay a skeleton, whether of man or horse I did not wait to see. Not a human being appeared until we reached the penitentiary, which was occupied by our men. After that I saw crowds of wagons moving furniture out, but not a creature that I knew. Just back of our house was all that remained of a nice brick cottage, namely four crumbling walls. The offense was that the husband was fighting for the Confederates, so the wife was made to suffer and is now homeless like many thousands besides. It really seems as though God wanted to spare our homes. The frame dwellings adjoining were not touched even. The town was hardly recognizable, and required some skill to avoid the corners blocked up by trees, so as to get in at all. 
Our house could not be reached by the front, so we left the buggy in the back yard, and running through the lot without stopping to examine the storeroom and servants' rooms that opened wide, I went through the alley and entered by the front door. Fortunate was it for this record that I undertook to describe the sacking only from Miriam's account. If I had waited until now it would never have been mentioned, for as I looked around, to attempt such a thing seemed absurd. I stood in the parlor in silent amazement, and in answer to Charlie's, Well, I could only laugh. It was so hard to realize. As I looked for each well-known article, I could hardly believe that Abraham Lincoln's officers had really come so low down as to steal in such a wholesale manner. The papier-mâché workbox Miriam had given me was gone. The baby sack I was crocheting, with all knitting needles and wools, gone also. Of all the beautiful engravings of Annapolis that Will Pinckney had sent me, there remained a single one. Gentlemen, my name is written on each. Not a book remained in the parlor except Idols of the King, which contained my name also, and which, together with the door-plate, was the only case in which the name of Morgan was spared. They must have thought we were related to John Morgan, and wreaked their vengeance on us for that reason. Thanks for the honor, but there is not the slightest connection— where they did not carry off articles bearing our name, they cut it off, as in the visiting cards, and left only the first name. Every book of any value or interest, except Hume and Gibbon, was borrowed permanently. I regretted Macaulay more than all the rest. Brothers' splendid French histories went, too, all except L'Histoire de la Bastille, However, as they spared father's law libraries, all except one volume they used to support a flour-barrel with while they emptied it near the parlor door, we ought to be thankful. The dining-room was very funny. I looked around for the cut-glass celery and preserve dishes that were to be part of my dough, as mother always said, together with the champagne-glasses that had figured on the table the day that I was born, but there remained nothing. There was plenty of split-up furniture, though. I stood in mother's room before the shattered armoire, which I could hardly believe the same that I had smoothed my hair before, as I left home three weeks previously. Father's was split across and the lock torn off, and in the place of the hundreds of articles it contained I saw two bonnets, at the sight of which I actually sat down to laugh. One was Mother's velvet, which looked very much like a football in its present condition. Mine was not to be found, as the officers forgot to return it. Wonder who has my imperial. I know they never saw a handsomer one with its black velvet, purple silk, and ostrich feathers. I went to my room. Gone was my small paradise. Had this shocking place ever been habitable? The tall mirror squinted at me from a thousand broken angles. It looked so knowing. I tried to fancy the Yankee officers being dragged from under my bed by the leg, thanks to Charles, but it seemed too absurd, so I let them alone. My desk! 
What a sight! The central part I had kept as a little curiosity shop with all my little trinkets and keepsakes, of which a large proportion were from my gentlemen friends. I looked for all I had left, found only a piece of the Macrae, which, as it was labelled in full, I was surprised they had spared. Precious letters I found under heaps of broken china and rags. All my notes were gone with many letters. I looked for a letter of poor blank, in cipher, with the key attached, and the name signed in plain hand. I knew it would hardly be agreeable to him to have it read, and it certainly would be unpleasant to me to have it published, but I could not find it. Miriam thinks she saw something answering the description somewhere, though. Bah! What is the use of describing such a scene? Many suffered along with us, though none so severely. Indeed, the Yankees cursed loudly at those who did not leave anything worth stealing. They cannot complain of us on that score. All our handsome Brussels carpets, together with Lydia's fur, were taken, too. What did they not take? In the garret, in its darkest corner, a whole gilt-edged china set of Lydia's had been overlooked. So I set to work and packed it up, while Charlie packed her furniture in a wagon to send to her father. It was now three o'clock, and with my light linen dress thrown off, I was standing over a barrel putting in cups and saucers as fast as I could wrap them in the rags that covered the floor, when Mr. Larguier sent me a nice little dinner. I had been so many hours without eating, nineteen, I think, during three of which I had slept, that I had lost all appetite, but nevertheless I ate it to show my appreciation. If I should hereafter think that the quantity of rags was exaggerated, let me here state that after I had packed the barrel and china with them, it made no perceptible diminution of the pile. As soon as I had finished my task, Charlie was ready to leave again, so I left town without seeing or hearing any one or anything except what lay in my path. As we drove out of the gate, I begged Charlie to let me get my bird, as I heard Charles Barker had him. A man was dispatched, and in a few minutes returned with my Jimmy. I have since heard that Tish deserted him the day of the battle, as I so much feared she would, and that Charles found him late in the evening and took charge of him. With my pet once more with me, we drove off again. I cast many a longing look at the graveyard, but knowing Charlie did not want to stop, I said nothing, though I had been there but once in three months, and that once six weeks ago. I could see where the fence had been thrown down by our soldiers as they charged the Federals, but it was now replaced, though many a picket was gone. Once more I stopped at Mrs. Brown's while Charlie went on to Clinton, leaving me to drive Mother here in the morning. Early yesterday, after seeing Miriam's piano and the mattresses packed up and on the road, we started off in the buggy, and after a tedious ride through a melting sun, arrived here about three o'clock, having again missed my dinner, which I kept a profound secret until supper-time. By next Ash Wednesday I will have learned how to fast without getting sick. Though very tired, I sat sewing until after sunset, dictating a page and a half to Anna, who was writing to Howell. 
August 29th, Clinton, Louisiana. Noah's duck has found another resting place. Yesterday I was interrupted while writing to pack up for another move, it being impossible to find a boarding-house in the neighborhood. We heard of some about here, and Charlie had engaged a house for his family where the servants were already settled, so I hurried off to my task. No easy one either, considering the heat and length of time allowed. This time I ate dinner as I packed again. About four, finding Miriam did not come to Mr. Elder's as she promised, I started over to General Carter's with her clothes, and found her just getting into the buggy to ride over, as I arrived, warm, tired, hardly able to stand. After taking her over, the General sent the buggy back for Mrs. Carter and myself, and soon we were all assembled waiting for the cars. At last, determining to wait for them near the track, we set off again, General Carter driving me in his buggy. I love General Carter. Again, after so many kind invitations, he told me he was sorry we would not remain with him. If we were content, he would be only too happy to have us with him, and spoke so kindly that I felt as though I had a Yankee ball in my throat. I was disposed to be melancholy anyway. I could not say many words without choking. I was going from the kindest of friends to a country where I had none at all, so could not feel very gay. As we reached the track, the cars came shrieking along. There was a pause, a scuffle, during which the general placed me and my bird in a seat, while Lily, Charlie, Miriam, Mother, five children, and two servants, with all the baggage, were thrown aboard some way, when with a shriek and a jerk we were off again, without a chance of saying good-bye even. I enjoyed that ride. It had but one fault, and that was that it came to an end. I would have wished it to spin along until the war was over, or we in a settled home. But it ended at last, to Jimmy's great relief, for he was too frightened to move even, and only ventured a timid chirp if the car stopped, as if to ask, Is it over? Nothing occurred of any interest except once a little boy sent us slightly off the track by meddling with the brakes. Landed at sunset, it is hard to fancy a more forlorn crew while waiting at the depot to get the baggage off before coming to the house. We burst out laughing as we looked at each lengthened face. Such a procession through the straggling village has hardly been seen before. How we laughed at our forlorn plight as we trudged through the hilly streets, they have no pavements here, looking like immigrants from the old country as we have watched them in New Orleans. At the house we found Tish laid up. The loaded wagon with its baggage, four mules, three grown servants, and four children was precipitated from a bridge twenty-five feet high by the breaking of the before-mentioned causeway and landed with the whole concern in deep water below. Wonderful to relate, not a life was lost. The mattress on which the negroes remained seated floated them off into shallow water. The only one hurt was Tish, who had her leg severely sprained. The baggage was afterwards fished out, rather wet. 
In the mud next morning, it happened late at night, Dophy found a tiny fancy bottle that she had secreted from the Yankees, a present from Clemmy Lusenberg it was, and one of two things left in my curiosity shop by the Yankees. After seeing everything in, we started off for the hotel, where we arrived after dark, rather tired, I think. Not a comfortable house, either, unless you call a bare, unfurnished, dirty room without shutter or anything else comfortable. Particularly when you are to sleep on the floor with four children and three grown people and a servant. After breakfast we came here until we can find a place to settle in, which Mr. Marsden has promised to attend to for us. It is rather rough housekeeping yet, but Lily has not yet got settled. Our dinner was rather primitive. There was a knife and fork to carve the meat, and then it was finished with spoons. I sat on the floor with my plate and a piece of cornbread, flour not to be bought at any price, and ate with my fingers, a new experience. I found that water can be drunk out of a cup. Oof! I am tired. August 30th. Still no prospect of a lodging, so here we remain. I never before lived in a house without a balcony, and have only now found out how inconvenient it is. The whole establishment consists of two rooms on each side of a passage as wide as the front door, and as it has a very low ceiling with no opening and no shade near, it is decidedly the warmest spot I ever inhabited. We all sleep on the floor and keep our clothes in our trunks, except Lily, who has an armoire without doors. Knives and forks for dinner to-day, though the table still consists of a single plank. The house really has a suffocating effect on me. There is such a close look about it. The front is fully a foot below the level of the street, while quite a flight of steps leads from the back door to the yard. In fact, the whole town consists of abrupt little mounds. It is rather a pretty place, but heaven save me from the misery of living in it. Miriam is crazy to remain, even advocates that dirty, bare, shutterless boarding-house where we passed the first night, from what attraction I cannot imagine. I am just as anxious to get into the country. I would hate the dull round of this little place. I prefer solitude where I can do as I please without being observed. Here we are as well known by people we never before heard of as though we were fellow-citizens. End of Book 3, Part 4